Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, that car you're thinking about buying, it's getting harder to find. And that's just the way the automakers want it. If you visited an auto dealer lately, you know not a lot of cars on the lot. And what is there they're selling for eye-watering prices, sometimes more than what's on the sticker in the window. Pandemic shortages made cars scarce and expensive, sure, but that's just part of it. We asked listeners to tell us about their recent car buying experiences. Here's what one of them had to say. Hey, I'm Will Guevara, and I live in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, So my wife's car was totaled, and we had to spend about a month comparing cars before settling on a Toyota RAV4. Basically, any dealership outside of Richmond was pushing big, non-negotiable markups like $4,000 in Virginia Beach, $6,000 in Springfield. Richmond was the only place selling at sticker price. With all that, it was still about a three to four month wait from pre-order to pick up. It was understood that the sticker price was a deal. My colleagues Keith Naughton and David Welch in Detroit cover the U.S. auto industry, and they've written a big story about why, if automakers get their way, fewer cars and higher prices may be here to stay. David, maybe I'll start with you. I think anyone who's gone to look for a new car lately has realized that, wow, cars are really expensive. But you and Keith, in your story, right? no, cars are really expensive. Can you give a sense of just how much more expensive they've become in the last couple of years? Yeah, right now, new cars are at record prices. They are pretty close to $50,000 is the average price of a new vehicle. And that's up about 30% over the past two or three years. The 1965 Chevy Impala, which was America's family sedan, one in eight vehicles sold that year was an Impala, uh, sold for, I think, a base price of about $2,300. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $25,000. So the prices today are twice what people paid for new cars back then. Uh, So it kind of tells you that this contract with the middle class that Uh, You know, if you work hard, if you behave, as Billy Joel sang, you can get your great house and you can get your new car. It's getting further and further out of reach for everybody. And used car prices aren't much better. The average payment these days is about $770 a month for a new vehicle and between about $570 a month for a used vehicle. And uh, economists say that the average household should be spending about $400 a month on a vehicle. So the prices are big. The payments are big. Part of that has to do with interest rates, but it's getting very difficult, if not impossible, for middle class, working class people to afford a new vehicle. Keith, why have cars gotten so expensive? I mean, that example of the Chevy Impala, 
even adjusted for inflation as being half of what you would pay for a new car now, that's a pretty surprising number. What is behind that? So this all started, Wes, when the pandemic hit, really. Uh, the, the 30% increase that David was talking about is since 2019. It's not a very long time horizon. But as soon as the pandemic hit, well, first factory shut down and, and you know, the supply of cars went down. But then that was followed by the shortage of semiconductors worldwide that really took a blow to auto manufacturing globally. So dealer lots emptied out. It was the old law of supply and demand. There were very few cars out there to buy and the prices of both new and used cars just went through the roof at a much higher rate than inflation. And so you now have this situation of a $50,000 average price. In 2019, it was about 35. That's exactly right, Keith. I mean, this all started with this shortage of vehicles. And when dealers found that they could charge above sticker price and make you pay for, not exaggerating, uh, special coatings on the seats that would prevent spills from staining them, clear coat on the glass, clear coat on the paint, and they would charge a thousand or two for it. And some wouldn't even give you that stuff. They would just slap thousands of dollars above MSRP. Uh, once dealers discovered they could do that because there wasn't very much inventory and automakers had been raising prices very quietly on their own, everybody was sort of basking in this, this bonanza of pricing and profits. So uh, what was bad for the consumer started by the pandemic and the semiconductor shortage has been great for the profits of those who build, engineer, and sell cars. Well, that's a really interesting point because in your story, you write that, sure, this started with supply chain issues during the pandemic, and we've all heard about the chip shortage. But even after a lot of that eased, car prices didn't come back down. They stayed up. And what you write is that this is sort of by design that the auto industry has learned that scarcity is an easier way to make money than trying to sell a whole lot of cars at lower prices. Yeah, the new formula is sell fewer cars to wealthier people and you make more money. So the industry sold 2 million fewer cars last year than they did in 2019, but their revenues were actually higher and their profits as well. So if you're selling to, you know, very wealthy households, they not only will pay a higher average price, they go for the highest trimmed out cars that there are. They order all the bells and whistles. And that's where you really get into the profits if you're an automaker. So they like this formula. They'd like to stick with it. They not only want to stick with it, they sort of look at the days when they didn't do this as the bad old days. And, you know, the old business model for auto companies, and, and we're not saying it'll never come back, but car companies are gonna try very hard not to bring it back, but they used to just produce, produce, produce. You know, run three shifts at plants, go for market share, go for big volume, and then foist these cars off on dealers and use discounts if they didn't move them all in order to get the sales going. And that's where you had four and $5,000 rebates and 0% financing and cheap lease deals. Bob Lutz, the retired vice chairman of General Motors, used to call it the size of the bribe we had to give consumers <laughs> in order to get them to buy the car. And these were they, they had, in addition to that, big carrying costs because you need more parts in inventory, you need more vehicles in inventory. Dealers have to borrow money, what they call floor plan financing, 
to carry that inventory and they have to take care of those cars. So everybody's paying more money up and down the system to sell a car that they're going to have to discount. It was kind of insane. Uh, but there was a reason for that. Throughout the past decade, the average new car payment was about $400 a month. And at the beginning of the pandemic, it hit 410. And then as things got tighter and things got tougher for all the reasons Keith explained, it just got worse and worse for consumers and better for everybody else. And there's another factor here too, is to make all those vehicles that flood dealer lots, you're running plants at three shifts. A lot of plants have scaled back. They're still running two shifts, but if they're paying fewer people to get more revenue, that's another thing the car companies really would rather not do. And Keith, it's not like the automakers are making a secret of this. The CEO of General Motors, the CEO of Ford have kind of come out and said, we don't want to go back to the old days. Is that right? Yeah, they don't want to use the old push model where they're selling the deal rather than the car. They want to have what Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford Motor Company, has said. Is he'd like to have an ordering system like they do in Europe where you order your car and then you wait for several weeks for it to arrive. And then it comes and you pay the price that is on the sticker and you get on with it. That's not the way Americans have been buying cars for a century. We show up on the lot and the dealer says, what do I have to do to get you into a car tonight? And, you know, they have every color and combination scattered across that lot and you can go find the car you want. That requires very high inventories. And it's what David was talking about, these very large overhead. So the automakers want to get rid of that. They'll, it'll lower their marketing costs. It'll lower all these, this discounting that they have to do. So um, they measure inventory in days supply. The historical rule of thumb was keep 60 or more days supply on a dealer's lot. And it would blow it up to 100 on some hard-to-sell cars. They would like to have it now more in the range of 40 to 50 days, 35 days if they could get away with it. But that means the choice consumers have when they show up at a dealer will be very limited, and they'll be channeled into this system of ordering cars that Europeans accept. It's a big question as to whether or not Americans would, would accept that. General Motors CEO Mary Barr is saying they never want to get back to the days where they carried this huge amount of inventory. Now, that doesn't mean they also want to run the way they did during the pandemic and the semiconductor shortage where they had almost no inventory and they were signing cars over to consumers who had already paid for them, you know, right off the delivery trucks. So they're looking for a happy medium that still gets them very good pricing. That does tell us that new vehicle prices will come down, but they probably just won't come crashing down to the point where we go from payments that are seven seventy a month to 400 a month again. Yeah, well, over at Ford, um, uh, the CEO, Jim Farley, covets the direct sales model that Tesla has. Tesla doesn't have dealer showrooms. It doesn't advertise. And Farley says that gives Tesla a $4,000 car advantage. That's why Tesla's auto profit margins are close to 26%. And, you know, Ford is trying to get up to 8%. So, you know, what... Farley says about the inventory and the marketing and the advertising is we need to get rid of all of that. David and Keith, please stick around. We'll continue talking after the break.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. My name is Philip. I'm from LA. I purchased the brand new luxury truck uh, last November 2022 Ford F-150 King Ranch. I paid $1,000 less than MSRP. And ironically, I was very content with that deal, given how ridiculously expensive luxury trucks have gotten over the past few years. The selling price of the truck itself was $69,000. And with MSRP plus tax, plus licensing fees, plus extended warranty, it came in grand total just under $80,000 out the door. There's another listener telling us about trying to get a new car. Keith, you described how many Americans, middle-class Americans, simply can't afford a new car anymore, either because the cars themselves are so expensive or the interest rates make the payments crazy. Are we now headed for a world in which only the rich can afford a car and middle-class earners and people who aren't in the middle class buy used cars? Like, we have a two-tiered system? For sure. The historical precedent was set over a century ago by Henry Ford when he said he was going to build a car for the great multitude and he paid his workers $5 a day so they could afford to buy them. So that compact is being broken in this latest pricing scheme that is aimed at the wealthy. So what that does is it drives the middle class to the used car market, where they're going to find prices are high there too. The average used car now is $30,000. I mean, a seven-year-old used car is close to $20,000. It's just this incredible inflation where if you're middle class or or less, you're just going to have a hard time getting into wheels, whether they're new or used. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention electric vehicles, which are the hot new segment in the market. And in your story, you write how the problem is even sort of worse there because those cars are just more expensive than their gasoline-powered counterparts. They're basically luxury cars right now. Yeah, the average price of a new electric car is $61,000. And that's come down because Tesla just did this big round of price cuts. It was closer to $70,000 before the Tesla price cuts. So... That's another thing that is pushing up the average price of new cars and and pushing it farther out of reach of regular Americans. As David said, an EV is a luxury car. Yeah, that's right. Even if it's not sold under a luxury brand, they have all the amenities, they have cool technology, and they certainly sell at those prices. You're seeing Ford F-150 Lightnings sell for 80000 or more, I believe. As you say... The automakers would like to keep supply low and prices high. So do you think ultimately competition comes back and pushes prices down more? Actually, Ford just said that they see overall industry-wide prices coming down about 5% this year. The supply of chips is starting to improve, so that bottleneck is is finally breaking. So we're going to see an inventory rise. And the dealers that we talk to 
they think this notion that the automakers are going to be able to restrain inventory is just crazy. They say as soon as the guy down the street starts discounting his cars, I have to discount mine or I lose all my business. So it'll be interesting to see if the American culture can support this restraint that the automakers would like. It feels like once you have supply and the American free market goes to work, we might be right back where we used to be. All of that depends on how quickly the supply comes back. Two people you interviewed in the story, uh, Mary Barra and the other one, Jack Hollis, who's Toyota's top sales executive in the United States, both said the, the industry should have enough semiconductor chips to make 15 million vehicles in the U.S. this year, which is still better than last year, but historically down a couple million vehicles worth. If that's the case, and if pricing and interest rates keep buyers away, you, you don't have enough supply out there to bring prices crashing down. If Ford is correct, prices are gonna, overall pricing drops 5% this year, that's from 50,000, that gets you to 47.50, which is still a historically very high number. So that's what we say in the story is that prices will come down because we'll have supply. Remember that this record pricing came out of a period of absolute unprecedented scarcity. We're not gonna have that forever, but we will have a different paradigm for a while because there just won't be chip supply to go back to 17 and a half million vehicles a year, probably this year, maybe not next year. We will get there eventually, and then it'll really test whether or not automakers have discipline. But for the foreseeable future, you'll see new car prices come down, but they have to come crashing down for middle-class people to buy them. There's another factor too, Wes, that'll be hitting this year on supply. So used car prices and new car prices sort of move in tandem. They affect each other, and supply affects them both. The used car market gets a lot of its inventory from cars coming off three-year leases. Three years ago, the pandemic was hitting. The leasing market stopped entirely, like every other market. So we're about to enter a period when there's no cars coming off lease because nothing was being leased three years ago. So that means the used car market will have a shortage of supply again, and that will prop up used car prices, which will then prop up new car prices. David Welch, Keith Naughton, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Wes. Thanks, Wes. When we come back, one country that's not cutting back on production, it's China. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So we've heard how automakers like GM and Ford are embracing this new business model, fewer cars at higher prices. But at the same time, automakers in China are cranking out cars at a record pace and selling them often at far lower prices all over the world, except in the U.S. 
Bloomberg reporter Tom Hancock has taken a close look at China's booming auto industry, and he joins me now from London to explain. Tom, you've written this story with a great headline. The U.S. hasn't noticed that China-made cars are taking over the world. And one thing that really stood out was that China is now poised to become the world's number two exporter of passenger cars right behind Japan, which has been the leader for a long time. Yes, that's right. So China is on the verge of overtaking Germany, which has been the world's second largest car exporter after Japan, in terms of the number of cars shipped per year. And that has happened extremely quickly. Basically, it's all happened during the pandemic. And we've seen a tripling of Chinese shipments since 2020. And so in the last two years, basically, Chinese car exports have exploded. So just in two years, they've tripled their exports. How is that even possible? Well, the groundwork for this has been laid for a long time. And the background, uh, really, that I get to in the story is about how Chinese cars are of a much higher quality than they used to be. And there are a number of reasons why that's happened. In 2018, the Chinese car market, which is the largest in the world in terms of sales actually shrunk in terms of sales for the first time in several decades. And that was really a wake-up call, I think, for the Chinese car industry. And they started looking around and thinking, now we've got pretty good quality cars, we can focus more on exports. So it's a change of strategy. Another big factor is electric vehicles. And China has really got behind electric vehicles or EVs, as they're sometimes called, with subsidies for suppliers all up and down the chain from battery metals to batteries and car makers. And that's really given Chinese car makers a level playing field with the foreign car makers because everyone is starting to make EVs from scratch, basically. And China is where the supply chain is. There's been a very large increase in EV exports, particularly to Europe, where there's a hunger for cheap EVs and Chinese brands are filling that niche. And they're often doing it not under their own brands, but under acquired European brands. The most obvious example are Volvo vehicles. So we start the story by talking to a British man, Andreas Tatt, who was looking around for a premium EV. And he thought about a Tesla. He thought about some other models. And he settled on a Polestar, uh, Polestar 2 to be precise. And that is a Volvo brand. But Volvo, of course, was acquired by a Chinese company, Geely, about a decade ago. They still produce cars in Europe, but the Polestar, partly because of the advantages of making electric vehicles in China, is made in China. And so he bought a made-in-China car. He was a little bit worried, maybe, about the quality, but he said he took it for a test drive, and then he no longer had any doubts. He's been very happy with it since, and there are now a lot of Europeans driving around in EVs made in China. And it's not just Chinese-owned brands that are producing a lot of cars in China, but some of the best-known non-Chinese brands, like Tesla, are churning out a huge number of cars in China. Absolutely. So Tesla opened a facility in Shanghai. They got permission in 2018 that it could be wholly owned. So that was a big 
break from what happened previously, where foreign car makers, if they wanted to access manufacturing in China, they had to form joint ventures with local companies. But China really wanted a Tesla factory. And so they said, you can completely own it. And that means Tesla gets all the profits. And so they, they realized that they could use China as an export hub. Because the EV supply chain is centered there, that means it's cheaper to make cars there than almost anywhere else. And so Tesla started using the Shanghai factory, not just to serve the Chinese market, which is enormous, but also to export cars to Germany and other European countries. And that was a big part of the surge of electric vehicle exports. Because you write that now more than half of the cars Tesla makes every year are made in the Shanghai plant. Right. So by that measure, it's their biggest factory. Now, not all of those are exported. A lot of them are sold in China. Chinese people love to buy Teslas. But it also makes sense when you can't meet the demand from your U.S. factory. And because of costs, it makes sense to use China as an export hub. And that's been what's happening. The cars have not really been going to the U.S. And that opens up another discussion about why they haven't been going to the U.S. Yeah, let's talk about that. Where are the biggest markets for these Chinese-made vehicles? You know, I've talked a lot about electric vehicles. They're an important part of the story. They're an exciting part of the story. And they are probably the fastest growing segment of Chinese car exports. Um, so that's one part of the story. But if we look at Chinese car exports overall, most of them are still internal combustion cars, your old-fashioned gas-guzzling cars. And they are exported in large numbers now to emerging markets. So in Saudi Arabia, in Chile, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Malaysia, people are buying Chinese branded and they do actually come under their own Chinese brands, uh, not using uh, necessarily foreign brands that have been acquired. People are buying these internal combustion cars that are made in China. And that's really because they're now competitive with the South Korean and Japanese brands that have often had that sort of budget niche in those countries. Chinese cars are now visible. And Europe also it now imports these internal combustion cars from China. But EVs are sort of the growth market of the future, and it's what Chinese car brands of all stripes really see as the future. Now, you raise a very important question. Why aren't they going to America? The people that I spoke to in the industry were saying the number one reason is really tariffs. The fact that Donald Trump introduced very heavy tariffs on Chinese cars means that it doesn't make a lot of sense to manufacture in China and export them. So that's an obvious reason. Also, there's probably more suspicion of Chinese brands in general. This is at least what the Chinese companies think. They are worried about what U.S. consumers will think of them as Chinese brands. And they're also worried about what the U.S. government will do. Who knows what regulations there might be coming in. And then the final piece in the jigsaw puzzle really is Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. So that's all about making sure that EVs are manufactured in the U.S. If you manufacture them in the U.S., you get all kinds of tax breaks. And if you manufacture them in China, you won't get those. So now what we see is, for example, Polestar, which is ultimately owned by a Chinese company, Geely, they are thinking about opening a factory in the U.S. That's clearly a response to the Inflation Reduction Act, and they'll get credits for doing that. So you might see more Chinese cars sold in the U.S., but that's not the focus because of these trade disputes. And if they 
want to enter the US market, it's likely they'll set up shop in the US or maybe if they're internal combustion, they'll set up shop in Mexico. US is a very tough market and it's sort of the last one that these car makers want to crack. They've got enough on their hands with Europe, really. Tom, when you look down the road a few years from now, do you think that China will be able to crack the U.S. market? Are we going to see maybe some of these Chinese brands with big factories in the U.S. or have some other arrangements where Chinese cars are going to be competing head-to-head with all the other brands trying to find buyers in the U.S.? I think it's really a political question. I think that if these brands have the economic and business case for selling in Europe, then it's not that hard to imagine that it could also work out for them in the US. Like I've said, probably they'll prefer to manufacture in the US, but maybe US politics won't even allow that. I think we have seen some Congress people making noises about they don't want Chinese battery factories, they don't want Chinese manufacturing, FDI, so foreign direct investment, in their regions because they don't trust China. They think maybe there could be spying going on from the factories or it's a strategic risk or something like that. And so it depends really if there is a political blocking of Chinese investment and then Chinese companies won't want to go there. So I really think it's a political question. Tom Hancock, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. You can read more reporting from Tom Hancock and David Welch and Keith Naughton at Bloomberg.com. Thank you for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producer is Rebecca Chasson, and our associate producer is Sam Gebauer. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.